we did two weeks ago, we started a series that I wanted to do on Wednesday nights, and I was talking about the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to bore you, but I'd just like to share reading something to you, because I think it's more descriptive than me trying to explain. Dennis chuckled to himself as he read the bumper sticker on the car in front of him, he who dies with the most toys wins. He had seen and heard the expression plenty of times, and he always got a kick out of it. As he sat there staring at the bumper in front of him, the irony of his own situation began to sink in. At no point in his life had he ever consciously subscribed to the philosophy represented by that bumper sticker. On the contrary, as a Christian, his belief system was diametrically opposed to everything that statement stood for. But if he was honest with himself, an outsider would simply say, who had watched him for any length of time, might conclude that his ultimate pursuit in life was the accumulation of the newest and most high-tech toys. That was not to say he didn't want to be a good father, a good husband, but somehow those values were not the driving force in his life anymore, not the way they were in the beginning. In fact, lately he had noticed that several areas of his original belief system had taken a back seat to the priorities set before him by his new world. What was happening? Making his, making his way up the accent ramp, he thought back to the night on the beach when, as a college student, he trusted Christ as a Savior. It was so real, so significant. His decision that night affected every facet of his life. He remembered the intensity with which he had communicated his newfound faith, faith to his fraternity brothers. Church was not a duty then. It was a delight. It was something he looked forward to each week. Everything was different now. His faith hadn't changed. He still believed all the same things, but something was missing. His whole Christian experience could be summed up by, I'm doing the best I can. The author further on reads this, says this, Far too many believers in, the Christian li- uh, in Christianity live their lives boiling down simply doing the best they can. There is no dynamic, no power, there is no real di- distinctiveness that can be attributed to anything other than their own personal discipline and determination. I meet believers all the time whose doctrine can be summed up in two statements. Nobody's perfect. God understands. For them, life is a long string of joys and sorrows with the promise of heaven at the end. There is often a deep chasm between what they sing on Sunday and what they actually do Monday through Saturday. They would be quick to argue that there should be meaningful relationships, that somehow the truth they hear on Sunday should seep into their daily lives, but somehow... The details of life are void of the divine. After all, business is business. Boys will be boys. Everybody is doing it. We have to be realistic, and on and on it goes. These pithy statements serve as the foundation for their Monday through Saturday theology. To an outsider looking in, there is often little or no difference between the lifestyle, thought life, habits of that type of Christian, and those of his uninformed heathen neighbor. Oh, there may be a foreboding sense of what ought to be done and what ought to be said, but Change is usually motivated by guilt, and consequently, it's very short-lived. The divorce rate for Christian adults isn't far behind that of the rest of the world. The percentage of Christian adolescents who are involved in premarital sex rivals the statistic for those kids who say they have no strong religious beliefs. Christian counseling services, they're increasing in demand. Statistically and observationally, there seems to be little difference between the lifestyle of the saints and that of the sinners. He goes on and he makes some comments, as the author writes better than I can state, but he makes the the argument that there are often, for many of us, all the different do's and don'ts that we have in our Christian life, that sometimes 
it gets real rigid. And our Christianity becomes more mechanical than it does an emotional experience. That instead of having that real close walk with the Lord, we're just doing our duty. We're just keeping our head above water. And we're going through our sense of our Christianity with losing a real thrill and enthusiasm, but we're functional. And he says, as he goes on, that that's the way the believers were when Jesus was dealing with the disciples. But then all of a sudden, the night that he's leaving, he says to the disciples, hey, listen, things have to be different in your life. And he gives them a whole message in chapters 14 through 7, 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John. And one of the key elements that he talks about is when I leave, you're going to be on your own. And here's what you need to do. And he gives them a lot of areas that they need to be thinking about. But it all surrounds relationships. It all surrounds keeping close and tight with the Lord God Almighty. How do we do that? Well, the key is Jesus says to the disciples that night when he's speaking to them, he makes a comment that he says, when I leave, I will not leave you orphan as an orphan. I will provide a what for you. Do you remember? I will provide a comforter. Now, when we look at the wording that he's going to use in that text, the idea is this. He says, I will pray and I will ask for another comforter. The word is helper. Somebody to prop up. Somebody to come beside and give assistance. And so when he uses that concept of providing another helper, there is a very simple theology that comes out of it. We cannot continue in the Christian life trying to do it with our own determination, our own strength, because if that were the case, then why would God send us and promise us a helper? If we are strong enough to do it on our own, if we are able to win the world, if we are able to have victory over sin, if we are able to put our marriages all together where there's no difficulties and raise kids that are the epitome, an example of how Christian kids could be, if we can do that on our own strength and our own ability through our own determination and self-discipline, then why do we need a helper? The fact is, Jesus is saying we cannot fully live the Christian life in and of ourselves. Paul picks up with that same statement when he's in Ephesians 5. Paul's writing to the believers, and in Ephesians, he's going to make a comment to them. In verse 18, a passage that most of you are very familiar with, but it is a key to the Christian life that is often overlooked in our type of church just because of fear of how others have abused this doctrine. But in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Stop being drunk with wine, wherein is excess or debauchery, but he talks to the believers and says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he makes an observation here that in this text is so important, that he says that you and I, every one of us, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that it is an essential, it is, it is a requirement from God Almighty that is absolutely um, without, without exception, it is as important to our daily life as oxygen, to our spiritual life as oxygen is to our daily life. Why is that? Why is this text implying to you and me that it is so important for several reasons that we can just bring out real quickly? One, it's a command in this text. If it's a command of God, it's very important. He says in this text, he says, I'm commanding you, be filled. The idea is an imperative. It's the superior to an inferior, God to us. The apostle speaking on behalf of God, be filled with the Spirit of God. The idea when he says that is be ye filled is plural. He is writing to all the believers, and he's going to, in the, following, in the following passage, talk to children, parents, 
wives, husbands, workers, employers. He's going to talk to all different sects sects of society. And he's going to talk to different groups. And he's going to say, you all who are believers. And remember in chapter 2, he's gone on at length about the Jews and the Gentiles who are believers are on the same plane. You all, every one of you who is born again, you need this. This is for all believers to be filled by the Spirit. That means for all of us within this room who are born again. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit. Why? It's commanded. There is a second reason why in this text it is so important. Because of the benefits. Watch what he says in this text. He says, be filled with the Spirit of God. Um, and, he's, and he says, not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Then he goes on in verses 19 through the rest of the chapter. He's going to give us the benefits of it. What happens if we are filled? Let's go towards the end of the book. Chapter 6, I'm not even putting on the notes. I, I didn't, I just jumped over, but I'll state it now. Chapter 6 is dealing with the spiritual battle. The battle that we face with temptation and those fiery darts that come from Satan. Prior to facing that battle, we must be filled with the Spirit of God. Back up a couple of verses from that. Go to the end of chapter not to the end, I'm, I'm the end of my page. That doesn't help you one bit. Chapter 6, verse 9. He's going to talk in, there, in that section, verse 9, to those who are the employers. He's going to say to them, And you masters, do the same things to your employees, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, doesn't have respect of persons. So the masters, the businessmen, the, the ones who have succeeded and have built up where they are employing other people, they Prior to what he's telling them, they need to be filled with the Spirit. Go a couple verses before that. He's going to talk to those who are servants, starting with verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service, or just when they're around, as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not men. Again, you cannot be the right employee unless you are Spirit-filled. Back up a little bit more. He is talking in verse 4 about parents. And he says, and you fathers, stop provoking your children to wrath. Oh yeah, by determination and discipline and having all kinds of of little ditties around, that might help us, but we cannot be the right fathers, mothers, without the spirit-filled life. It's just, it's not going to work. We will frustrate our children, and probably by doing a number one, frustration, being inconsistent. Not saying one thing and doing another. Losing our tempers. Doing something that is going to cause frustration to them. Back up to verse uh, 1 and 2 and 3 of chapter 6. Who does he talk to in that text? He's talking to children. They are supposed to obey their parents. Well, how can they do that? How can children obey their parents? The spirit-filled life. Unfortunately, for most kids, I dare say this is probably true with most kids, even within our church. Most of the kids, if you said you need to be filled with the Spirit, they wouldn't have a clue what it is. They don't understand it. It's not something that we typically have made family conversation or family devotions surrounding the filling of the Spirit, to our shame. Okay, so yet, yet in this text, it is critical for kids to be able to have the right relationship with their parents that they're filled with the Spirit. Back up a little bit more. We're heading back towards verse 18, and we'll get there eventually. But look what he says in verses 22 of chapter 5 down to verse 33, which passage most every one of us knows. It's wives are supposed to do what to their husbands? Submit, revere. Respect. Husbands are supposed to three times stay love their wives. Oh, that's easy. 
because she is so lovely. I always love my wife. I always treat her without any kind of difficulty, without any kind of, with any kind of problems. We've been married 30 years and we've never had any disagreement with us about anything whatsoever. That happens in fairy tales and even there I question if it's reality. We all need the spirit-filled life to be the spouse that we're supposed to be. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, he says, okay, how do we interact with one another? How do we submit, take our, fill our spot, our role with one another, with fellow church members? Well, first of all, you need to be filled with the spirit. Back up to verse 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20, he says, okay, you want joy in your life? That is, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says, you want that joy? Look at verse 20. You want to be more thankful? in your life? Listen, folk, it's all about attitude and gratitude. It comes back to that won't happen without having the spirit-filled life. You need to be spirit-filled according to this text. Now, the question that most of us is going to be talking about is that, you know, we, we may we understand why we should, but the question that most of us have is going to be, you know, how do we do that? Well, to know how, you need to understand what exactly is the filling of the spirit. And I understand there's a lot of books out there, there's a lot of TV programs, there's a lot of different things on the internet that talk about the filling of the Spirit. But I want to explain very simply and very clearly just from this text what it is. We'll get into some of the other discussion and how some have warped it and twisted the idea. But here's what this word is. This idea that's plerusta, the idea of being filled with the Spirit has this idea. Very simply, letting something happen to you. You are in this verb that's a command to you, to me. It is the idea of you let this happen to you. It's a passive verb. It isn't something that we determine and say, mm, 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 mm. I'm going to think this through and I'm going to force myself to be filled with the Spirit. That's not how it works. You make yourself open to the Spirit and let Him do the filling. You let him do the leading. Exactly what is that idea? Well, it's the idea of you do this on a regular basis. You do this repeatedly. It's for all of us. supposed to be a regular part of our life and our Christian life. I would suggest daily, if not multiple times every day, that we need to let the Spirit fill us. Now, what does that really mean? What does that idea of filling mean? That's the key word. If we go back and we understand what the word meant in the original language at the time when the New Testament was being written, we be, and then how it was used in the New Testament, we get three basic thoughts that are almost similar. They're twins. They're close to being, uh, to being really common, but they're not quite identical, and yet they have the same idea. Whoops, did that wrong. The idea is, one, having pressure. What I mean by that is something that is empowering to move along. It is the idea that the ships, and that's where oftentimes we've referred to this in the past, the idea being filled is the sails, or all of a sudden the wind is coming, filling the sails of the ship, and it is starting to power that ship through the wind that it's going to move along. Probably another more simple illustration that many of us would understand is when you're standing by a creek or creek, however you want to say it, okay? When you're standing by that waterway and you throw a little stick in or you take the kids there and they watch the leaves go down, that is that idea of some power that is some pressure being applied and moving along that stick, that ship. That's the idea of this word that's used in this text, play rusta. It's the idea of letting the Holy Spirit move you. 
Letting the Holy Spirit prompt you. Letting the Holy Spirit direct you. Maybe I can make it more practical. Letting the Holy Spirit push you into doing what's right. When all of a sudden you've got that inner movement, that inner pressure, that inner conviction, that inner sensation that the Spirit is saying, forgive. When that the in, inside you're sensing witness. Inside you're getting that sense of, okay, I need to be patient here. I need to stop doing what I'm going to do. Well, that's the idea of Plerusa is that you let that pressure all of a sudden motivate, move you, and take you in the right direction. Another way that it is used is the idea of what we're going to say uh, permeate something, to just totally, totally engulf something. In the New Testament, sometimes that idea of filling, this is what you have, is uh, like taking some Alka-Seltzer, taking some, some medicine or something and putting it in the cup and letting it all you know, fizz and do its thing until it is all permeated and now it's the blend of the two. Well, that's the idea that you and I are supposed to let the Holy Spirit permeate our life, permeate our thought patterns, or not hold any part back, but let him have control of all areas. For some of us, not you, but the others here. For some of us, we are easily given to, comp- to comp- uh, compartmentalizing our lives. That all of a sudden, okay, God, you have this. You have Sunday morning. That's your time. But on Saturday afternoon, that's my time. Um, you have this, God. You have this area of, okay... Uh, my work. I will really work. But when it comes to my entertainment, I have some certain films or videos that are kind of my favorite, even though some of the language or some of the images are really you know, not appropriate, and I get really offended by a Donald Trump who says things, and I'm going to have a public outburst about somebody being crass, but I watch that very same stuff. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you shouldn't be watching that same stuff. And you say, wait a minute, but, but that's, nobody will know about it. But if he's going to permeate your life, you can't hold back one area. You can't hold back your relationship with your wife that says, okay, we can scream, we can argue, we can carry on, we don't do it in public. You can't compartmentalize your Christianity that way and say, Holy Spirit, you've got this, you've got this, but you can't have that. That's not the filling of the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is, a letting, is allowing him, letting him to be able to influence and affect every single part of your life. The jokes you tell, the books you read, the entertainment that we have, what we do with our time. Well, you know, when what, we, what we say and what we, re, what we say we're not going to say. Where we're going to stop and say, I've gone too far. We're, who we're going to forgive. How we're going to forgive. And so we let the Holy Spirit have that. When, we, when it comes to witnessing and we say, you permeate, you control, you do all that. There's a third area where the word shows up in the New Testament. Where it's the idea of possession. And it's very close to permeate. It's very close to that pressure. But it gives it just a little bit different angle. This shows up several times in the Gospels. Where it talks about the disciples being filled with fear. Where it talks about the Pharisees being filled with anger. And in those cases, that emotion is so um, intense. It is so strong that it all of a sudden... It just takes over possession of how they do, what they say, where they go, where, it, where their next decision comes. The anger becomes so strong that the Pharisees, just with their anger, they are all of a sudden striking out at Jesus Christ, and they are, they are rejecting everything, even though it is clear as can be. And they ask, give us another sign. Right after he did a miracle, they all of a sudden are talking dumb, being stupid. Why? Because the anger has made them to be 
idiotic in their reasoning. The idea is they're filled with their anger. That it is possessing them. It is controlling them. The disciples were so possessed with their fear that after Jesus is dead, they're cowering for those couple days in the upper room, totally, totally paralyzed by their fear. That is, in a good sense, that is what's supposed to happen to us. When the Spirit fills us, that the Spirit possesses us to such a degree, He makes a difference in what we think, how we feel, how we react. So there's a permeating. There's a pressure. There's this idea of possession. All of that fit together tells us this is what the filling is doing. Letting the Holy Spirit impact, move me, guide me, direct me, possess me, control me, convict me, comfort me in such a way that I am totally yielded. That is the filling of the Spirit. Yielding to the Holy Spirit. Letting Him have His way in my life. And for some people, it's very difficult. Some people that it's just, you know, all of a sudden, it just, they stop. They aren't sure. But when the Holy Spirit is, you're yielded to him, boy, things look different. Isn't this true in our life? When we get caught up with purchasing a car, we do the shopping. All of a sudden, we have some car in mind. It's amazing how many of those cars we all of a sudden notice. When we're picking a pair of glasses, okay, it's amazing how we notice those glasses that we didn't see before on other people. It can be with houses. It can be with diamonds. You know, when, whatever we're focused on, we all of a sudden have that focus and we see it all over. Okay? Uh, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about what bushes we would like to put in front of our house. It was amazing how many bushes we noticed all of a sudden. As you drive down the street, never paid attention, but now we're bush-minded. Okay? Or we wanted to change a fence. All of a sudden, for a week there, figuring out what we're going to do. We're fence-minded. Well, we're supposed to be Holy Spirit-minded that we are sensing, we are looking, and we are, we are trying to figure out what does he want? What does he want? What about this? What about that? And yet, it's a very difficult thing. So many people do not experience this filling of the Spirit. Why is that? I think there's several reasons. I think one reason is we have heard a lot of strange ideas about the filling of the Spirit. In the Christian community, coming out of some of the different movements, the Pentecostal Charismatic Movement in particular, they have hijacked the idea of the filling of the Spirit to the point that it is, all of a sudden, people are afraid of it. Because when the filling of the Spirit comes up in conversation, some people say, oh, does that mean I'm going to start barking like a dog? Does that mean I'm going to fall down and have some type of you know, ecstatic seizure take over me? Am I going to go into that holy laughter where I can't control myself and I just burst out? Am I going to all of a sudden lose control of my body? And it's scary and I've seen, I've heard about people and all of a sudden they're speaking in languages that they don't even know what they're saying, but surely it must be good because they don't know what they're saying. Okay? And so we get, we get fearful of what we've heard and don't understand, which is normal for us. That's, that's the way we normally are. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes that's very helpful. But in the sense that we look and say, oh, well, if that's with the filling of the Spirit, let's not talk about it. And that is true with many of churches like ours, that we have heard people abuse the term to the point that we don't even want to bring it up, lest somebody confuses us with being Pentecostal or charismatic because we're talking about the filling of the Spirit. And so we run away from it because we don't understand or can't explain it. So we just kind of, you know, and somebody has abused it, therefore we stay away from it. Now that, that's not healthy. You know people who have had problems in their marriage. Maybe your parents did. 
Maybe some aunt or uncle. Does that mean you should run away and never get married because all marriage is bad? No, that's not the case for most of you. Okay, we, you, know, you know some people have had problems with eating. Does that mean you're never going to eat? That's not the case for most of us. Okay, We don't have that issue. Just because we don't understand. But we get fearful of that. Here's where, here's where I was. When I was in college, we had a preacher that came through, and I really appreciate his preaching. He was there on the campus evangelist for about two years. Um, and as he preached, one of his strongest focuses was this idea of the spirit-filled life. He preached a couple different Bible conferences on it. And I was listening to him, but I, I, I didn't fully understand because I just felt, and this is going back to some of my feeling-oriented uh, days, where there had to be something. If I'm going to be filled with the spirit, then surely, yeah, when I'm feel, filled with the spirit, something's going to change. I'm going to get this, you know, something. I didn't know what it was, but something. Surely I'm going to get some tingle. Surely I'm going to get some wiggle out of this. Surely there's going to be, if I get this filling, I will have no craving for any bad thoughts ever again. Well, that lasted for 30 seconds. So therefore, I didn't understand the filling. And as such, I remember one night in particular, he gave an invitation. And he gave the invitation, and I remember sitting there, going to the front, and then he had people sit there, and he said, you know, he gave the invitation. I was the last one left in the room. And I was still praying, just fill me, fill me, oh, Holy Spirit, I want you to fill me. And when the lights went out, I thought it happened. And all of a sudden it got dark, and I thought, it happened, you know, I got filled. Oh, no, they just shut off the lights. That's what this... I just didn't fully understand. I wasn't listening because my mind was just about, oh, I wanted all the good stuff he was talking about, but I wasn't listening to the process and how it would work. And so as a result, I struggled with that for a period of time in those days in college, just thinking there had to be something more. So when I'd start off the day and say, Holy Spirit, I want you to fill me, and then halfway through the day, I'd get frustrated with somebody, with something, and I would say something or think something that I knew was inappropriate, therefore, oh, well, I must have lost it. And so I didn't understand how this all worked. And I don't think I'm the only one that has gone through that. Maybe I am. But because of that lack of understanding, I think there's a greater problem here. And that is this. I think a lot of people hesitate to really come to this point in their life where they actually say to the Spirit, fill me, and really, really mean it because they don't understand the Holy Spirit. They're afraid of the Holy Spirit. Part of that fear is the terminology we use. In most of our Bibles, he's not called the Holy Spirit. He's called the what? The Holy Spirit. Ghost and ghosts, they kind of freak us out. Okay, they scare us. The, the term scares us. I mean, people scare us that we don't know. There are times here when uh, it, freak, it, it happens. If uh, we're working here, we keep the front doors locked because we're just learned by the society and the nature of what's happening. It's probably safer, especially if nobody's watching the front door, that we just kind of keep it locked and let the doorbell ring. And then we go up and unlock it. But I tell you what, sometimes early in the morning, there's been opportunities where you come out or late in the evening, you hear or see, you hear the doorbell and see a shadow out there. But you can't make out any image or visage. Have no clue who's out there. 
Now, this is me. None of you would do this. This is me. I want to go on behind the counter and figure out who's out there before I expose that I'm in the building because if they're after me, for some reason, they're always after me. If they're after me, you know, they'll know I'm here by myself. So I want to find out who it is beforehand. And what's worse is if I don't recognize the form. You know, like they're wearing winter coats. And you can't figure it out. And so if I'm walking up to the door and it's one of you and you're going like this, I don't know if you're brandishing some weapon. In my mind, I'm thinking, the, I've, you know, I'm one of those creeped out people. You know, I'm thinking they're out to, you know, they're out to get the Baptist, you know, something. And so I'll walk up to the door a little bit hesitant and it's like, who are you? And Joyce will say, it's me, Pastor. I've known you for all these years. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, I didn't recognize you in your you know, Eskimo outfit. We don't know, don't recognize, and we shy away. I think that's normal for a lot of us, whether it be at our home or not. If we don't know who the Holy Spirit is, then why would you turn over the keys of your life to him? Is that true? Why would you, why would you with confidence say, have total control of my moods? Not if I don't know who you are. If I don't understand what you are. So I think that there's in this, in this whole discussion, we can talk about, and everybody likes the bottom line of saying, show me victory, show me victory. But victory, there's a process here. In this growth in our Christian life, and it comes down to being filled with the Spirit, but to be filled by Him, and to have total confidence where you are totally yielding to Him, you better know who you're dealing with. you got to know a little bit of background about this person, about this character. About this Holy Spirit. That's why we started where we were last week. We said the Holy Spirit is a real person. And we gave you several different facts from Scripture that as a real person, He does certain things. He has intellect, He thinks. He searches. We gave you multiple passages last time. that I'm not going to rehearse this because I have other material I want to give you. There's the intellect of the Holy Spirit that he searches the deep things. That he knows the deep things of God. That he knows the mind of God. He is a being that thinks, that processes, that has heightened awareness and knowledge of himself and of others. He has emotion. In the sense that he can be grieved, he can be, he can be quenched, he can be thrilled, he can produce love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. He's an emotional being. He is not just this, you know, this power, this source, this electrical plug that we get. He is an individual who has intellect, who has emotion, who has decision-making process. This is very important. You understand he's a person. If you want him to guide you, you've got to understand that he's more than a computer. He is an individual who thinks. He is an individual who has a will. He has a, he has a desire and a plan and a purpose. Why is that? Because he deals with us as a person deals with us. But he's more than just an individual. And I'm not trying to be so simplistic as to bore you, but I want you to think with me through this, through this evening. Just really bear with me for the next few minutes. He's God. And then think with me what that really means in the, in the sense of the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do for you. He's God. How do I know he's God? How do I know that he's, he's part of this trinity? Well, he does what and possesses what God does, what God possesses. He has the ability of omniscience, knowing everything. Isaiah writes, he says, who has directed the Spirit of God? Who counseled the Spirit of God? Who came and instructed him? Who told him how to make judgment? The answer to all these questions is what? No one. Why didn't the Holy Spirit need somebody to mentor him? 
Why didn't the Holy Spirit need to go to kindergarten and high school and graduate school? He knew, knew everything and knows everything. He's omniscient. He has all knowledge. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, will guide you into all truth. Okay? For you and me as a believer, what is truth? I may not understand it all, but I know one person who knows it all. And that one person will guide me into it. That's a beauty of this. He knows everything. He knows what is truth. He knows what is right and wrong. He's omnipresent. You have your Bibles in hand. Jump with me to Psalm 139. We'll probably be here again on Sunday morning. Psalm 139. But it won't hurt to look at it tonight just briefly. Psalm 139. It is in this text that he's talking about the Spirit of God. And he makes these comments. He says in Psalm 139. This is the passage of search me, O God. Know know every part about me. But Psalm 139 verse 7. Whither shall I go from your spirit? Whither shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up into the heavens, you're there. If I, if I make my bed in the grave or in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your, right hand, shall your hand lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, you know, cover me with the darkness, I, I, I can't. The Spirit of God is everywhere. By the way, that has tremendous impact on our filling of the Spirit. That He can be within all of us at any one moment. Not, not diminished in any sense. He, he isn't you know, dependent upon that tower getting the best reception. We got the, all of the Spirit, all the time, all we need. Because of His omniscience and His omnipresence. He's omnipotent. He can do anything. What do we read in Romans 15? Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem. He's the one who did the miracles that empowered them at times that Paul is writing about. What else do I know about the Holy Spirit? Well, this conversation Mary had with the angel. She says to the angel, and he's, when the angel is telling her she's going to have the Christ child in the incarnation, the, um, the angel says, you know, Mary says, how is this going to be? I, I haven't had any relationships with the man. Remember what the angel says? The angel says, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. And then the next two verses later, it makes this statement, for with God... Nothing shall be impossible. He can do. The Holy Spirit is so potent and powerful. He can create life where there is no life. He does not need our science. He doesn't even need our bodies. He can do it. He can make, he can make life out of dirt. He is that powerful, that amazing. He's truth. We already mentioned this, that he is truth. He is correct. He understands everything. I'll tell you something else, but he's eternal. He is described in Hebrews chapter 9 when Jesus, and we'll look at this text more in depth in a couple weeks, where it's how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal, the everlasting, the un, uh, had no beginning, has no end spirit, is, is working through and within him. You know, in our world, we have specialists, do we not? Do you have specialists when it comes to mechanical work? There's some people that do specialty works. Do we have that in the medical field? Yes, yes. Do we have specialists in dentistry? Okay. Steve, you don't do every type of dental work, do you? You can, but okay. But you're, you're the, a specialist in a certain field. Okay. When you were in the military, did they have specialist groups in the military that would do certain operations? Sure. We have it in our whole life. Well, we have one specialist. 
that is on our benefit for us doing ministry and he specializes in so many different ministries that he does that he will then help you. But watch what his specialty was in creation. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There he was. Actively involved in creation. To the point that we read later on. Job says the spirit of God has made me. And the spirit of the almighty has given me life. So he's involved even in our life, beyond, you know, beyond the initial creation, but even procreation. He's involved with life. We know that he was involved in inspiration. You all know this passage. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And he goes on, talks about how it's profitable. In Peter, he explains exactly who in the Godhead was involved with it. He says this, knowing this, that no prophecy of scripture came by personal, people's motivation, by private interpretation, that is, the the people came up with it, that they devised it. He says, no, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He was involved in that inspiration that is done by God. We know this, he sanctifies. You and I can't sanctify, but he does. He makes holy where it says God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. We know that some of his words and it declare that he has even given the title of God. Do you remember the story that's pictured here? Ananias and Sapphira. They come to church and they bring their offering and their, their offering is we sold all our property and we're bringing all the money that we got for it. We're bringing and giving it to be used for the needy. Did they sell their property? Did they bring the monies to the church? Yeah. Where, where was the flaw? They, didn't, they, they were lying about the amount. They kept back part. And Paul and Peter is all of a sudden led by the Spirit of God and he's going to point out, he says, you are lying. Now watch what he says. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? And he goes on to say, you could do with what you want with that price of the land. The issue wasn't that you didn't give it all. The issue was that you lied about what you gave. You presented yourself better than what you were doing. But he says, watch this, he says, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have not lied unto men, but you have lied unto who? Okay, in the word, the Holy Spirit is called God. Okay, he's called God elsewhere. Where it says in 1 Corinthians 12, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Two verses later, there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God. So there you have the Spirit and God equated, called, and be doing the same exact work. He's called God as you go into 1 Corinthians chapter 3, passage many of you have memorized. You are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells within you. Equating God, Spirit, being one. We have the terminology that comes through scriptures that give that indication. He does what God does. He's, he has the attributes of God. He is called God. And yet some of us will sit here and be confused. Right over here. Right in front of where Brad is sitting on that pew right in front of him. About three years ago sat a fellow that was in our services on several occasions. And one Sunday morning after the service, I sat there until about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon talking with the fellow, and his whole argument was, Jesus was not God. There is only one God. If you say Jesus was God, now you have two gods. Yeah. And if you say the Holy Spirit is God, now you have three gods. And we went around and around and around about it, and he said, unless you can tell me how it works, I will not accept it. Okay. I'm going to tell you honestly a couple things here. The Trinity, the word is never found in the Bible. 
The, ter- the word is never there. The concept is, but the word's not. I don't know how to fully explain the Trinity to everybody's satisfaction. But then again, I don't know how to explain a lot of things the way they work. I don't know how an airplane gets off the ground, but I get in them. I don't understand fully how the car works, but I drive it. I put gas in, and I put a lot of gas in because Deb doesn't, and then I'd run out. No, um, the, um, I don't understand how the cell phones work. I don't understand the computers, how they work. I've learned this week how a washer works because I've taken part mine several times. Okay. So I get more of a clue. But a lot of these things, do you understand how they fully function? Oh, wait, until I fully understand it, I'm not going to use it. That wouldn't happen for most of us. And so what happens here is we may not be able to fully understand, but I can show you the facts that the Scriptures give. The facts that the Bible, talking about the Holy Spirit, says this in the Old Testament, there is one God. And he says very clearly, Israel, this is the Shema passage. This is the first verse that parents in the Old Testament would have the kids learn. The Shema passage was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And do you remember the next verse? You shall love the Lord, the God, with all the heart, the soul, the mind. Would come up two verses later, I should say. And so they had that. Now Jesus is asked one day, what is the most important commandment? And he says, well, you know that the word says, and he quotes the Shema passage. Then he goes on and he says, you shall love the Lord, the God, with all the heart, the soul, the mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he affirms in that text that this is true. The Lord our God is one. He is absolutely just one. He isn't a multi, he isn't a, um, a plethora of gods. We don't believe in this polytheism. We know as well the New Testament talks one God. We know an idol is nothing. There is none other God but one. This is our theology. God is one. There's this one divine being, one divine essence. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him. And so we keep on going. There is one God between man and uh, 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 and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And uh, yet, the Bible indicates there's more personalities in that one. Do you remember all the way back in Genesis, the first inclination? Let us do what? Let's make man in our image. Okay? Very beginning. Remember how Isaiah says, whom shall we send and who will go for us? Implication that God on the throne, there's more than one personality involved. Okay? And so what we have is this idea that Isaiah says, and these are interesting, some of these texts. Come you unto me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. Okay, now this is somebody who's saying that I was eternal. Now watch how he identifies himself and the other characters. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Who is this? Who's this one that's talking? It's Jesus, who he will quote these texts later on in the New Testament, especially this Isaiah passage, that they work together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty. The idea is that these three are working in harmony. So there is one God, three persons, and they are identified with names in the New Testament. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We understand that. We see this frequently. But we hear it elsewhere. Jesus, when he comes up out of the water, all of a sudden he's there, the heavens are opened, and the Spirit comes down like a dove would descend, and all of a sudden there's a voice that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Who do we have here? 
Okay, in this passage, we have Jesus mentioned first, the Holy Spirit, then the Father. I'm going to bring this up, this order each time for the next few verses. Just keep this in mind. We'll come back to it. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to pray to the Father. He shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You got Jesus identified first. I'm going to do the action, the Father and the Holy Spirit. You have another text talking about them working in harmony. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit, all identified Jesus now, then the Father, then the Holy Spirit. (coughs) Excuse me. We have God the Father mentioned. We have the Spirit mentioned. We have Jesus Christ mentioned. And so at times you're going to see in some of these passages that the order in which they mention, they are mentioned changes. Usually we're used to, in the way we say it, it's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Almost as if there's a declining hierarchy there. And yet... Uh, there may be in some of their activity, but in essence, there's an equality here. That there's an interchange of how they are referred to. Here's the bottom line. There's one God. We'll bring this all together. Okay, there's one God. There, there's three persons in that one Godhead. They are all equal, as indicated by interchangeability within their, their descriptive titles. And the Holy Spirit, therefore, <coughs> the Holy Spirit is totally God. Now keep with me as I wind this up. He is totally God. As such, being totally God, how does that impact you and me? Well, you and I should be absolutely dumbfounded, awestruck by the fact that God, the Spirit, God, God, the one is the Spirit, that God lives within you. God of all creation has chosen to live within your being. Amazing. Why would God of all creation, the Holy Spirit is is totally God, why would he choose to dwell within our vessels? I mean, look at us. Look at us physically, it's a laugh. Especially some of us are more, more funny as time goes by. Look at us spiritually. Look at us emotionally. Look at the weakness that we possess. And he chooses to dwell in you and me. That is absolutely amazing. That he wants to be that involved in our lives. That he would move into our very vessels. That's an amazing, awesome thought. That God, the Spirit, would choose to live within you. That he is ever with you. No matter where you go, the age you get, he says, I will be with you always. Everywhere you go. You go to the farthest part of the globe. You go down, you go to an area that you say, okay, you know, I drive through a rough section of town. He's with you. You go to these, you know, these marvelous structures and he's with us. You go to Disney World, he's with you. You go to church, he's with you. You go to bed, he's with you. You're riding in your car by yourself, he's with you. It's amazing that God would choose to do that. You know, we use titles. For different peoples, mostly the Catholic Church throughout these titles, and maybe some other churches with you know their their different archbishops and whatnot, but they call the most revered person his holiness. Well, you actually have his holiness, the true holiness within you. Living within you. The holiness that, that is of God is in you when you're sitting down and talking around the table. When you're in that workroom. When you're watching TV, when you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off, His holiness is with you. Shouldn't that impact how we live and respond and act? 
Shouldn't it make an impression upon us when we think that he knows us intimately? He knows our strengths more than we do. He knows our weaknesses better than we do. He, he knows everything about us. I mean, you and I, we don't have the single clue of our weight changes so much. But he knows the very what? The hairs on our head that change drastically from day to day. And he's living within you. He is dwelling within you. And you know what the beauty of it? He knows my future. He knows what's best for me. This person who has in the spirit has chosen to live within me, knows me, knows what's good, knows what's bad, and he still chooses to live within me. What grace. What grace that he will still guide and lead. And he knows what's best for me in the future. Therefore, he can lead. He can guide for what is the best I, that I can experience within his plan. Oh, it's an amazing. The fact that we are not alone. We are never alone. The Spirit of God is with us even when we face those toughest times, when all of a sudden we face those lonely moments, when you feel like nobody in the world cares, He does. He is with you. He is guiding you. He is loving you. He is learning you. He is leading you. By the way, this comes down to the bottom line. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to yield to Him. There should be no hesitancy when we think about who we're talking about. This is our God. This is the one who cares this much for us. This is the being who knows what's best for us. This is the, this is the Lord, the Holy One. Surely, he knows all truth. He knows what's best. I can trust him with my life. I can trust him to guide me into what is best for me. I can trust him to take over this area of my life and this area of my life and this area of my life. If I let him lead in the finances, he's not going to do me wrong. If I let him lead in how I deal with relationships, he's not going to make it something bad and evil. If I let him lead in how I serve and what I, what I yield to in witnessing, he's not going to put me in a spot that is going to be a terrible spot and an awful place to be and a mistaken spot. He's going to guide He's going to lead. You and I can't afford not to be filled with the Spirit. We must have it. We need it. And God in His grace... I mean, think about it. I, I, I just can't explain it. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm dumbfounded. God lives within us. Amazing. Amazing, amazing. And He says, just yield. Let me lead. Let me guide. Let me direct your life. And you will be amazed at what I'll do through you.